Good afternoon. Let's get started with the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 2 and verse 12. We're talking about the third of the seven churches. But before we go any further, uh, prayer request. Got a lot of issues in my family, so just continue to remember us. Our daughter is in Dallas, Texas, so remember her. She uh, She's out at a conference, so just ask God's protection on her. Remember churches all over the land, all over the country. Um, friend of mine just joined, Barbara Evans. Her, her uh, great-grandson was airlifted to the hospital, just born. So let's remember this as well. If not any other prayer requests, we will go to the Lord in prayer. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your many blessings upon our life, for allowing us the opportunity once again to come into your house to worship, to praise, and to honor your name. Lord, we ask that you'll anoint my lips as I endeavor to bring forth your message. Lord, that you'll anoint our ears to hear and our hearts to receive. Lord, that you'll touch each and every request. Lord, that you'll touch this baby, Lord, as you as it is in the hospital. We know that you are the master physician. You said by your stripes we are healed. We stand on that promise for this small child, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen. Chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel in the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. The following six verses of, of chapter 2 is the what he has said to the church of Pergamos, the third of the seven churches. It is interesting that he addresses the letter with a description of the sharp sword with two edges. We saw in Revelation 1 and 16 that John described a two-edged sharp sword coming from Jesus' mouth. The sharp two-edged sword, or as he states here, the sharp sword with two edges, is the word. God's precepts. The word was how Jesus was described in John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Pergamos, which is now called Ber Bergama, and is on the river Achaicus, this location is where parchment was invented. And hence why the Greeks called it Pergamene after the location in which it was invented. They, they used to call parchment Pergamene because it came from the land of Pergamus. Parchment was, I guess, their um, competition for papyrus. They wasn't able to get papyrus from Egypt very well, so they invented a new process, parchment. And from parchment, we get paper. So it really all started right here in, in this church or in the city of Pergamos where the third church is. And I said it was kind of interesting. The tar sharp two-edged sword represents the word. Parchment was invented in Pergamos where words was written down on. So... Yes, I think a lot of times when you're studying the book of Revelation, if you know the backstory to the churches or if you know the concept or the culture around it, it helps to solidify and also clarify what's going on with the churches. But there's another reason why he came with a sharp two-edged sword, and we'll see that in just a moment. 
I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Now, let's back up for just a second and remember how Satan or the serpent was was described to us in the Garden of Eden. He was described as a snake. He's a serpent. But it's kind of harsh language, if you want to say it that way, that, that God or Jesus is saying, this is where Satan sits. You're right now in the city where Satan sits. This is his seat. This is his throne, even where Satan's seat is. It's interesting verbiage. But why would God say that Satan had a seat at Pergamos? Archaeology tells us that on a crag or a steep, rugged rock or cliff that overlooked the city, above the city was a throne-like altar to none other than Zeus. Zeus was supposedly the king of the gods, little g. This was to honor the defeat of a Gaelic incursion and was decorated with representation of the battle between the gods, little g, and giants. The giants were represented by a serpent or a snake-like tail. We see that in Genesis, Satan was described to us as a serpent. We see that the altar of Zeus has a serpent or snake-like tails on it. That's their decoration. So, yeah, it's probably pretty, pretty known back then that, that Pergamos was a hotbed of Zeus worship. The church of Pergamos held on to, the, held on to Christ and never denied the faith, even in the face of severe persecution. Now, last week we talked about, or maybe it was two weeks ago now, it's all coming, blending together, but we talked about the martyr uh, that uh, was written, the songs was written about, and his name was Polycarp. He was stuck in the side with a sword, and that put out the fire. They tried to kill him. They eventually did we hear that there is another martyr here, Antipas. Now, Antipas died a horrible death. I'll be honest with you. It's a death that I wouldn't wish on anyone, even in my worst enemies. Antipas was, according to tradition, the bishop of Pergamos. He was appointed by John the Apostle, or the writer or stenographer of Revelation. Tradition also has it, that Antipas, because of his preaching, was leading people away from the false gods. He was dragged into the courtyard and placed in a metal statue of a bull made from copper. This is according to tradition. Some will tell you that this bull was never used in this fashion. But according to Jewish tradition, we see that it was used. A fire was placed under the bull while Antipas was inside the bull. And he was basically cooked to death. 
while being cooked, he prayed loudly for those that tormented and tortured him. And at the end of his prayers, he laid down peacefully and passed away as if he was just going to sleep. We see the same thing with Stephen when he was being stoned. At the end, they described him as just laying down and going to sleep. The device of the brazen bull or bronze bull had supposedly pipes fashioned in such a way that the screams of the victim made the bull sound like it was bellowing and smoke would come out of its nostrils. So it looked like it was a smoking, screaming bull. Tradition also teaches us that the, I forget who actually had this thing made, but the inventor of this bull was the first victim of this bull. The emperor that he built it for got mad at him, threw him in it to make sure that it worked, cooked him to death. Now that's a horrible way to die. Some will tell you that they never used the brazen bull. Jewish tradition tells us, yes, they did. History kind of hints at that, yes, at least it was used once because they killed the inventor of the bull in the bull. But that was Antipas. He was the, he was the bishop of Pergamos. Pergamos had held on to the beliefs and the faith and all of this, but... We find out that there was a, a rebuke to them. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Go back with me to Numbers chapter 22 through 24, and I'm not going to read all of Numbers 22 through 24. But he, this individual, this prophet, was asked by the king of Moab, Balak, to curse the Israelites. Now, this is Balaam the prophet. He was supposed to curse the Israelites as they were coming into the plains of Moab. Numbers 22 and verse 6. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people. For they are too mighty for me. Peradventure I shall prevail that we may smite them and that I may drive them out of the land. For I wot that he whom thou blessed is blessed and he whom thou cursest is cursed. We see that he had a reputation. Balaam had a, a significant reputation of being a man of God. And whoever he blessed was blessed and whoever he was cursed was cursed. So the king of Moab and I don't know if I got into Moab, but I don't see it. Let me just tell you, if you don't know where Moab come from, remember in the plains of Shinar, where Lot took up his occupation and his living, and the three visitors came to the wilderness and visited with Abraham and said, we're going to Sodom, we're going to go to Gomorrah, and we're going to see if the evil that we've heard of is really there, and we're going to destroy the city. And Abraham went, and eh, my nephew's there. Could we spare him? So he got him talked down to spare in the city if they could find, what, five alive? Or five that was worshiping God or ten? It was, it was a small number, ten. 
Well, they couldn't find ten. They couldn't really find one. When you really go and look at what was going on, they really couldn't even find one. But because of Abraham, they spared Lot, his wife, and his two unmarried daughters. Because the others that was married, they laughed at Lot and said, Get out of here, old man. You don't know what you're talking about. So they destroyed the city. As they was leaving and the fire fell, Lot's wife turned around and became a pillar of salt because she longed to go back. Now, Jewish, if you really read the Hebrews, she not only longed to go back, but she took some steps going back. Well, they were supposed to go to the mountains, the four of them. Instead, he talked them into letting him go into this little city called Zoar. While he was in Zoar, he got scared and he went to the mountains anyway. His daughters got him drunk and they got with child with him. Moab was one of the offspring of an incestuous relationship. So that's where we get Moab from. Now we see the king of Moab wanting uh, the prophet to come in and curse this multitude of people. Now he didn't tell the prophet who the multitude of people were. I just, they, they've come out of Egypt and I want you to come and curse them because if you curse them, they're going to be cursed. So Balaam was a prophet. Ooh, ooh. Oh, sorry. Sorry. However, he made God mad when he went with the men that Balak had sent. God told him he could go if they came again for him in the morning. God's words was specific. If they come for you in the morning, you may go with them. We see the next verse. Balaam just gets up, gets his donkey saddled, and he goes and meets the men. They had not came to him yet. Would they have come to him? I don't know. But so often we jump the gun, we get to conclusions that God doesn't want us to go to. And we say, well, God, why are you mad at me? This is what you told me to do. No, this is not what God told you to do. This is not what God told Robert to do. What we are doing is we are putting words in God's mouth. God said, if they come to you, you can go. If. Big words. Two little letters, but a big word. If they come, you can go with them. He got up, got his donkey ready, and rode out to meet them. On the way, God had sent an angel to kill Balaam. The donkey is the only pure enough flesh and blood to see the angel. He runs out in the field. He lays down. Third time, he runs up against the wall and he crushes Balaam's leg up against the wall. And then he speaks because Balaam's beating him. He said, well, why are you beating me? Have I ever done this before? And you know, it always surprised me that Balaam didn't scream and yell like a little girl and run away. I would have if a donkey spoke to me in, you know, my language. But he said, no, you've never done this before. I don't understand. He said, well, look ahead. And then Balaam's eyes was open. He saw the angel. He realized the donkey had saved his life. Sometimes we get saved by the even, you know, donkeys. And sometimes he uses donkeys to spread messages. That's why I'm here. He got up and went to the men that the king had sent on his journey back to the plains of Moab. The donkey that Balaam rode on acted up three times. The third time, God allowed the donkey to speak, and Balaam realized that the donkey had saved his life from the angel. 
once he had seen who it was the king wanted him to curse, God had him to bless them instead. Wonderful way to end the story there. Beautiful way to end the story. I'm going to bless you. And he blesses them. But we see that it didn't end just there. We read on in Numbers 31 and 16. Balaam did instruct Balak to tempt the children of Israel, the men, to eat food placed in front of an idol and to entice them with beautiful women. Numbers 31 and 16. Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So we see in Numbers 31 verse 16 that Balaam was not finished when he blessed the country of Israel as they left Egypt, but he turned around and he told Balak how to do that. We really, in, in reading the scriptures, we don't understand exactly what he told them, but according to Jewish tradition, this trespass was for Balak to set up inns along the route of the Israelites while they were in this country of Moab. And they were to staff it with prostitutes. Or as my mother would say, women of ill repute. The inns would serve food that was placed in front of idols. If Balak did this, the men of Israel would deny God and their faith and would fall into apostasy. That's what the doctrine of Balaam is. I can turn your hearts away from God by giving you food and ladies. That's the doctrine of Balaam. Wait. Aren't we plagued with some of that same stuff today? Isn't that still kind of sort of going on? We see that the seven churches, as we study the seven churches, we see that, yes, each church represents a church age, but it also represents the age in which we live in. We, I know of churches right now that maybe they don't have prostitutes, ladies of ill repute, but they're offering up a different kind of meal. They're offering up a different kind of, of food. They're offering up a different kind of blessings, and they're leading hundreds and thousands astray. The doctrine of Balaam is still strong. The church of Pergamos was starting to live and let live. Pretty much anything goes. If the parishioners paid their tithes, they were good to go. We've got churches right now that sends a bill to their congregation members. You owe the church X amount of dollars this month. There is a a denomination, if you want to call it that, a religious movement is more like it, from out in the west, out towards Utah, that starts with the letter M. I won't go, I won't throw rocks at it, but I'm told that they will bill their members each month. So you get a done from your church. Just recently in the news, a lady wins the lottery. She was going to give 10% according to her. She gave 10%. Her pastor wanted more. The pastor took her to court and sued her. 
That happened in the Bible Belt just recently. And I believe, actually, the courts agreed with the pastor. If I read the last article correctly, they agreed with the pastor. Now, what's that message being sent to newbie uh, Christians and those that are just kind of on the fence? What's that message being sent? It's not the way church is supposed to operate. It's not the way Christ operated. Christ never begged for money. He told his people to go out, to not take money, but people would take care of them. And that's what happened. He set up, the the, uh, disciples set up deacons to take care of the flock. Deacons were the first servers, if you will. Literally, they served tables. They waited on people. What do you need? How do you need it? What would you like? That was the job of the deacons. But yet, we see churches now going crazy, suing congregation members because, my gosh, they didn't give more. Give me a break. The city of Pergamos had a very large library and as such loved the learning and the openness to new ideas and concepts, which in of itself is not a bad thing, but it can be a detriment when you're easily swayed by every doctrine. I enjoy learning. I enjoy learning new things, but I've got to be grounded. I've got to be rooted in the correct thing. And that's Christ and his teaching and his walk. That's where I've got to be grounded and rooted in. If I wasn't, I'd be out there just like these people, wandering around lost. Verse 15, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. There's those guys again, and girls, don't want to leave you all out. The Nicolaitans, we don't, we still, from Revelation chapter 2 and verse 6, we really don't understand who they are. No one does. Some believe, as we talked about, that it was followers of Nicholas, who along with Stephen, the first martyr, was listed as a deacon. And in Acts 6 and 5, we read, and the same pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, Philip, Prochorius, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. A proselyte is someone who converts to Christianity or Judaism. We use this term now to represent someone who has been asked to change churches, religions, or beliefs. However, there are no indications that this Nicholas had changed his beliefs and went a different way. We see nothing in Scripture. We really don't see anything in tradition, Jewish tradition, that says that this Nicolaitans was following after the deacon Nicholas. Take him with him a following. No, this may not be who Christ is referring to at this time, but apparently the Nicolaitans were followers of a false teacher and were going in the wrong direction. We have to understand that there are false teachers still in this world today, very much alive in current-day America, very much alive in the state of North Carolina, very much going in, in Lincoln County and Gaston County and Mecklenburg County and wherever. 
there are false teachers. If they are not teaching God's word, if they are not teaching you to follow God's word, they're a false teacher. And in fact, a false teacher is a um, type of an antichrist because he is not teaching what Christ has taught us, so he becomes an antichrist. Repent, in verse 16, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus is telling the church of Pergamos that if they do not repent, he would fight against them with the truth of the gospel. Their wokeness, as we would call it today, I hate that term, oh, it's a woke generation, that doesn't make sense to me. You're either asleep or you're awake. You're not awoke. You get awoke when you wake up and you get on your job. But that's just Robert's, you know, pet peeve. Their wokeness, as we would call it today, cannot stand in the light of the truth. However, he has given them an opportunity. He says, repent or else. I will come unto thee quickly. He's given them an opportunity to turn from the rudderless directions and their ways that they are going and return to him. They're like a big ship with a broken rudder. Just going about in a big, huge circle. Wave catches them just the right way and it'll push them to a new directory. Wind pushes them in a different directory. They are swaying different ways. And that's why I say, their belief and their learning was their paramount. They, that was their priority. That's what they hung their hats on. Much learning doth make thee mad, Festus told Paul. Much learning can make us mad. We see the indoctrination of colleges all across the land, all over the world, is, sh is shoving junk down our children's throats and it's not even in colleges anymore it's in high schools it's in grammar school it's in middle school they're teaching our children stuff that just shouldn't ever been taught they're teaching our children stuff that is not right when you really think about it they're teaching them wrong stuff and some parents is okay with this some not all but some science can only take you to the grave. But God's words can take you to eternity. Man's knowledge, as good as it is, cannot compare to God's truth. I've studied a little bit of science. I've studied a lot of science. I cannot get behind this concept of the Big Bang Theory. I've read it different ways. I've read it from different people. I cannot get behind this concept. It does not make sense to me. I've, I've read enough of The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin that says, this is stupid. Why am I even bothering reading this stuff? But I also know that our arguments about evolution, and I'm saying ours as Christians, our arguments is flawed as well. We can't use the argument of, against evolution. Well, if evolution's possible, then there would be no more monkeys. We can use that argument because if evolution is possible, and it's not, 
Something's evolving into the monkeys that's evolving into us. So the chain is constantly going. Nothing's broken the chain. You wouldn't have monkeys unless something broke before the monkeys came. And Charles Darwin never said monkeys. He just said lower primates. We all say monkeys. But Charles Darwin never said that we evolved from monkeys. But we have monkeys because something is evolving into the monkeys. If evolution was true, it's not. If it was true, how many times have you needed a third arm or a fourth arm in your lifetime? We would have three or four arms by now because I'm sure we're not the only species. I'm, not, I'm sure we're not the only generation that's needed a fourth arm or a third arm to hold the flashlight while you're turning the nut or wrench. Maybe we should say, you know, evolution is not true because we're, eyes don't, our eyes does not light up and become our flashlights. Why can't we have eyes that are flashlights if evolution's true? We needed them. I needed them just the other night going out into the backyard. I needed those lights. Instead, I had to carry my phone and use its flashlight. Evolution's not true, and I'm making a joke about it, but it's not true. A friend of mine told me, he said, if evolution was true, he was going, much fish as he had eaten in his lifetime, he was going to evolve into a fish. And I told him right quick, that would be de-evolution because we came from fish. He's like, you're an idiot, go away. <laughs> Evolution's not true. I'm not saying that it is. But I'm saying that people can make it sound good. People can make anything sound good. I've listened to some speakers that once I backed away from them and thought about what they were saying, I was called up in the emotions. But once I moved myself physically away from them, I'm like, well, that don't make sense. What they're saying just doesn't make sense. So science can take us to the grave, but God will take us through and into eternity. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name, written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. To all the churches, to those that overcome or endure to the end, Matthew 10 and 22 tells us, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. It's not talking to the buildings. It's not talking to one denomination. It's talking to Christians, the people that occupy the buildings. That's the churches that he says, if you will endure till the end, you'll be saved. Saved from what? Saved from hell. A very literal place that is burning with fire, has been burning with fire from before the earth was ever in, in thought about, in my personal opinion, because we don't know how old this earth really is. But hell has been there since Satan was cast down out of, out of heaven. And the angels was cast down with him. That's who's designed to go to hell. Not me, not you, not any person. The angels are the only ones that's ever to have been sent there. 
They took themselves there. God didn't send them. They took themselves there. They followed Satan. They followed Lucifer. And they took themselves to hell. But that was it. That was where it was supposed to stop. But then man got involved. And we got to listening to Satan. And we fell. And because we fell in the spirit of disobedience, we are going there as well. God didn't send us. God didn't put us there. We done it ourselves. Will I give to eat of the hidden manna? Verse 17 says. John 6 and 35. Jesus tells those that are listening and to us as well. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Thirst. Matthew 4 and 4, Jesus tells Satan, but he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Jesus is a hidden manna. That's who he's going to allow us to eat. Not physically. I know when I was a kid and I'd hear people talking about communion. Take, this is my body, eat. Take, this is my blood, drink. I don't want no part of that. that that's, that's actually sent to a little kid. That's gross. But it's not literal that we're going to take and eat the body and drink the blood. It represents the cleansing. It represents taking in of the spirit. And that's the hidden manna. We will get to, ex to experience Christ in a way that we've never even considered. But then there's that, I will give him a white stone. Hmm. The hidden manna, though, is the bread of life. The white stone is a symbol that may not be very clear at first. Exactly what is the white stone? And a new name? Well, we can speculate. But in the Old and the New Testament times, often lots were cast for judgment and other matters. To cast lots, often rocks or stones were used, and there was always one stone of different colors, or a different color, and it was often white. It was that individual that drew or the stone was cast to the person of interest. If it was casting lots for judgment, the one stone of a different color was the one that said guilty or not guilty. In this case, it was dependent on how the lots were cast. In this case, the white stone will be those that are proven not guilty. Notice I didn't say innocent. We are not innocent. Even in today's American judges and judicial system and courtrooms, you are never, ever declared innocent. Because you're not. Because I'm not. We're guilty of something. Spiritually, we are guilty of sin. Clear and simple. We was born into sin. It is through the power of what Jesus done on the cross of Calvary that we has that sin covered. The sin nature is still there. Trust me. If you want to see it, ride with me on the interstate. You'll see it real quick. If somebody cuts me off, I, I'm, I'm ballistic. Or in a rainstorm and they're driving too slow. Just get out of the way. Park it. If you don't want to drive in the rain, just park it. I'll go around you. 
we are determined or proven not guilty because of what Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary. Those that are written in the Lamb's book of life and are welcomed into heaven. The new name is how God will reclassify us or rename us by the rewards that we have sent to heaven. I don't know what my name will be. Don't have a clue. I once said in Sunday school it would be the Hebrew equation or the equivalent of wimp. And one of the guys in Sunday school, uh, Mr. Don Spain, he, God rest his soul, he passed away a number of years ago. Loved that man. He was, he was quite a character. He went home and researched how you would write the word wimp in, the Israel, in, in Hebrew and sent it to me. And I'm like, thanks, Don. I appreciate that. Somewhere is on my phone or somewhere is in my computer. That note still exists. So I think my, my white stone, when I see it, I'm going to go, wow, peg that one. But anyway, we're going to turn to the appendix and we're going to read about more about Pergamos because it's important we get, as I said at the beginning, we're, it's important to get the backstory. What is Pergamos? What is it known for now? What was it known for then? Pergamos was a city in Mysia or Minor Asia. It was approximately three miles north of the Caiacus River. It was also called Pergamum. It was the seat of power, the capital of the Asian Roman Empire for about two centuries. This was the location that parchment was invented. The city of Pergamus had a very large library, one that would rival the Library of Alexandria. Because of their desire to have knowledge, the people of Pergamus would debate various concepts, and if it sounded good, they would lean that direction until a better concept would come along. This increased their knowledge, but they were like a rudderless ship and was drifting whichever the proverbial wind blew. So it didn't matter. They were a woke generation. Oh my gosh, it's not anything new. We didn't invent it. We see it in Pergamus. We see it in Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it in, in ancient Egypt. We see it in all of the awoke generation. I believe even Cain became a woke individual using today's language. I despise that word, but using today's language. Because of their pagan worship, there was a very large throne-like altar for Zeus overlooking the city. This altar is now in the Berlin Museum. It still exists. They uncovered it and they carried it to Berlin. But it was this throne-like pagan altar that many think was why God called Pergamos the seat of Satan. These pagan beliefs held for a long time and even caused an individual named Antipas, the bishop of Pergamos, to lose his life. The church had begun to let the world influence it instead of the church influencing the world. We are in the shape we are in because the church is in the shape it's in. In the old days of, of the West, the town would come in and one of the first buildings that they built was the church. The church became their meeting place. The church became their school. The church became 
everything to them. And it was a place that they ran to in times of trouble. Storms, whatever, you went to the church. It was built usually in the center of the town. Where are churches at now? Not physically, we're all over the place. The city that has the most churches per capita is Las Vegas. If you want to count the wedding chapels as a church, if you count the wedding chapels, Las Vegas has more churches than any other city in the world. Look at the state that Las Vegas is in. The country is going the way it is because the church went the way it did. And we quit preaching and teaching. Anything goes. It had become soft on its stance of sin and had begun to live and let live. If the members of the church paid their dues, all was well. They had even begun tradition telling us to justify living outside of the precepts of God. Oh, you can go to the altar of Zeus and pray. It's okay. As long as you come on the direction or the time that we're supposed to meet here at the church. You, it's okay to go to Zeus. Wow. Doesn't that kind of sound like us today? Oh, it doesn't matter what you do. Just as long as you come to church, you're fine. Guess what? Satan comes to church. They prided themselves on a culture that we would call woke today and believed that their sin was not absolute. That you could live like you wanted and still make it to heaven. Their education and gathering of knowledge were one of the most important things for them, and God knew this. He told them that if they did not repent, he would come with the truth, the word, and defeat them. God is not against education. God is against people allowing education to become their gods. This library was so great that Antony sent it to Cleopatra as a gift, and the library was joined with the Library of Alexandria. Now, this happened before Revelation was written, but that's how important their knowledge gathering was. It is of significant interest, though, that after all of that, the library never rose to the prominence that it once had. Pergamus also was a medical school, medical university. Wow, even back then they had medical universities. Cool! Doctors learning how to be doctors. Nurses learning how to be nurses. I wouldn't want to go to these, this, this hospital. The treatments were not what you would say scientific. They were bizarre. They were weird. The god of healing, Ascobalus, had a temple at Pergamus. However, to be healed, hun, I can see you going into this hospital now and doing this. I can. I can see this. You went in and slept on the floor of this temple while harmless snakes crawled all over you of a night. Yeah, sign me up. Give me a room. No, I don't think so. I like snakes. I think they're cool. But they have their place. I have mine. And we don't cross. These snakes were supposed to be infused with the healing power of the god at Little G. And after a night or two in the temple, you would be healed of all of your ailments. Because as they crawled over you, they gave you a, 
a portion. They infused you with the spirit of their God. Yeah, no, I ain't going to that that one. How about you, Lynn? You want you want to try this? Yeah, no. Remember, and this is not in my notes, but I remember a good friend of mine was telling me of an individual that he knew ministering in the in the church, missionary, and he had heard of these voodoo rituals. I've never forgot this story. This guy wanted to see one of these voodoo rituals for himself, up close and personal. So he hid in the bushes to watch it. And this guy was telling me for the truth. He never lied to me that I ever found, so I don't think he was lying to me about this. He hid in the bushes, but he made some noise, and, and they heard him. And they started chanting. And he said in his one or two moments of lucidity from then on, he felt like someone had dumped an entire bucket of snakes on top of his head, and for the rest of his life, he could feel those snakes crawling all over him. This is a minister of the gospel, the wrong place at the wrong time. He died in an insane asylum because that feeling never left him. He had few moments of lucidity, and he told our friend, Paul Childers, told me this story one night, that that had happened. And then he went right back to screaming, get him off of me, get him off of me. He would rip his clothes off trying to get the snakes off of him. There is something very real about rituals such as that. It is no wonder that as God addressed the letter to Pergamos, that it was addressed with such a dire beginning and an urgency. This was a church on a slippery slope, much like the churches of today. Our churches today, a large percentage of them, are on a slippery slope. They are going down a path that they do not need to go down. They are traveling in a way that God never intended us to travel. We are not supposed to be influenced by the world. We are supposed to influence the world. Back at the turn of the century, in the 1900s, not the 2000s, but the 1900s, candidates for the President of the United States would seek out churches. And they would try to get the Christians to vote for them. Because, by golly, if the Christians will vote for you, you've won the race. Not so now. Not so now. I heard a friend of mine tell me one time that they had invited a uh, political speaker and all he did was a campaign. I'm like, well, what do you expect? That's what they do. They campaign. But you've got to understand that we're not supposed to allow the world to influence us. We're the church, not this building. I'm very appreciative to our pastors for letting me have this class in this church. I certainly wouldn't want to be doing it outside in this heat. So it's kind of nice to be standing in a, you know, air-conditioned room, comfortable seats. But we've got to understand that We've got to influence the world, not the other way around. We allow the world to come in and tell us how to operate. We allow the world to come in and tell us what we can teach and what we can't teach, what we can preach and what we can't preach. And I'm saying as a whole, there are churches out there that doesn't allow them to do that, but there are churches that does that. They talk about 
civil rights and, and you know, social justice and the woke culture. I despise that term, but that's what they're talking about. There's nothing wrong with a minister saying, get out and vote. There's nothing wrong with a minister of the church saying, okay, here's the candidates and here's what they stand for because this is what they've said they stand for. There's nothing wrong with that. Churches need to do that more often. But churches need to stand at the pulpit. Pastors need to stand at the pulpit. Congregation members need to go out into the community and teach and preach Christ. We're too busy trying to influence or be influencers. Yes, I know that we are broadcasting this live through Facebook. I'm not doing it to become an influencer. I'm doing it because God said to teach, to preach to all nations, to all creatures. That's why we do this. It's not about me. I really don't like this, to be honest with you. Now, I get to take this and turn it into just an audible version, and I really enjoy that. You don't get to see the ugly face that way. But we have got to start teaching. We've got to start preaching. And we have got to start telling and living Christ in front of everybody. Or our church, our personal church, us, will be on a slippery slope. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your many blessings upon our life, Lord. We ask that you'll touch and that you'll move and that you'll stretch forth your hand here this day, Lord, that you'll give us an opportunity for the rest of this week, Lord, to, to go out and to witness for you, to teach and to preach. God, we ask that you'll move and stretch forth your hand, Lord, that you'll keep us safe until we meet again, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen.